the Cuban Missile Crisis. Cuba became the focus of world attention. Here centered the most critical threat of global war since the surrender of Germany 17 years ago. October 1962. We're not going to invade Cuba. But we don't plan to invade Cuba under these conditions anyway. So if we can get them out, we're better off. There's been theatrical plays about it. Your hero Fidel is the underdog, and I like underdogs. There's been plenty of movies about it. Gentlemen, I want first reactions here. Assuming for the moment that Khrushchev has not gone off the deep end and intends to start World War III, what are we looking at? By now, you've probably heard all there is to hear about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Or have you? Khrushchev stopped. I stopped. We both sniffed. We were both enchanted. And I looked at Khrushchev and I said, have you ever tasted a freshly baked croissant? One thing's for sure, you haven't heard the entire story until you've heard our story. The Defense Intelligence Agency's version of Avoiding Armageddon. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the historic photograph of the Cuban crisis. Literally every single element of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which most people have no idea about even the existence of a DIA, and yet every single element of that situation was DIA. This is DIA Connections. It's escalating because missiles are becoming operational. Leaders are literally close to fingers on the button. We really were that close. You would hope that your family did not suffer. Uh, you'd hope that they, they'd be hit by the first, uh, the first bombs because life was gonna be really, really bad. Khrushchev was a man who was terrified of nuclear war. He said quite often, that if there were a war, the living would envy the dead. Thanks for joining us on DIA Connections as we reflect on the Cuban Missile Crisis with Defense Intelligence Agency Chief Historian Greg Elder, bomber pilot Gus Leto, and former CBS News Moscow correspondent Marvin Kalb. We're going to weave our way through intriguing conversations with each for their perspectives about a moment in time when the two largest superpowers clashed in a nuclear standoff and humanity came this close to its last breath. It's been almost 60 years since President Kennedy and Soviet Premier Khrushchev were, as Secretary of State Dean Rusk said, eyeball to eyeball in a nuclear game of chicken. The world at the brink, Armageddon, a button from oblivion, all phrases associated with the crisis that reflect any number of scenarios that had they occurred, either intentional or accidental, would have changed human civilization. President Kennedy's defense secretary was Robert McNamara. Since July 1, over 400 reconnaissance flights have been flown over the island of Cuba by U.S. military aircraft. Decades later, McNamara said, quote, In the end, we lucked out. It was luck that prevented nuclear war. Kennedy was rational. Khrushchev was rational. Castro was rational. Rational individuals came that close to the total destruction of their societies. Whether it was luck, a stroke of genius, or just great timing, one year earlier, in 1961, Secretary McNamara ordered a plan for a consolidated military intelligence organization, thus the creation of the Defense Intelligence Agency. At the time, DIA was working out of borrowed space in the Pentagon with just 25 people. 
So how, just one year later, did a fledgling agency unmask one of the most dangerous Soviet military deployments of the entire Cold War? That's the first part of the story, and we turn to DIA historians Greg Elder and Paul Isaacson to unravel it. So Greg, a lot of people don't even know what the Cuban Missile Crisis was all about. It was a long time ago, 60 years ago. Can you tell us in just a few words, what was this crisis even about? Sure. So Cuba had become a communist nation, and, and we kind of made an agreement with them that we wouldn't invade them if they didn't introduce any sort of offensive weapons, like what we're talking about here is like nuclear weapons. Well, suddenly in 1962, October 1962, we started seeing the Soviet Union introduce offensive nuclear weapons into Cuba, which, because it's right off the coast of the United States, posed an, an, an immediate um, strategic threat to our country. I mean, it put us at, at grave danger, at grave risk. And so, you know, that became a crisis because we couldn't allow Cuba and the Soviet Union to put those type of weapons so close to our country. Can you kind of give us a little brief overview of what was going on leading up to that crisis? We had already reached a, a serious point of tension between the United States and Soviet Union, so the Cuban Missile Crisis didn't come effectively out of nowhere. There was the Berlin blockade, the Soviets put up the Berlin Wall. East Germany put an end to the flights of refugees to the West by building a wall to keep people in and freedom out. They exploded uh, in 1961, the largest thermonuclear weapon ever exploded in the history of, of mankind. It was no ordinary weapon. It was the largest nuclear weapon ever constructed. Known as the Tsar Bomba, it was set off in the Russian Arctic Sea. It had the power of around 3,800 Hiroshima bombs detonated simultaneously. We're not only dealing with a Soviet Union as a threat over in Europe, but right off our coast, 90 miles away, we've got this communist country that's a threat as well. And so all of that was leading to this, to this real uh, uh, catastrophic moment where it was like a powder keg ready to blow. Yeah, right, right. So you gave us a good overview of the, of the overall tensions in the world. But let's talk a little bit about Cuba. At this time, the Soviet Union actually didn't have that many very long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles that could strike the United States from the homeland of, of, the, of the USSR. They had many more short or intermediate-range missiles, which were a threat to Europe, but not a threat to the United States, unless they could be placed very close to the United States. And here's where Cuba enters. And most disconcerting in, in that was a whole large number of surface-to-air two, SA-2 missiles, which was kind of the newest, latest, greatest surface-to-air missile the Soviets were deploying. So we wanted to see what was going on. And we really, in order to see where they were being deployed, how the Soviets were, were introducing the weapons, we needed to do reconnaissance flights. Just one month earlier, in September, reconnaissance flights were curtailed for fear of a shootdown. But based on accumulating evidence from various sources, DIA representatives urgently recommended for increased flights. Their persistence paid off when President Kennedy gave permission to conduct one, quote, in-and-out reconnaissance run. So on October 14, 1962, a really important day in history, a single U-2 flight flew over what's called the trapezoid of Cuba in western Cuba took a bunch of images, flew it back to the United States. The new reconnaissance photographs are in. 
This time, some of the aircraft have flown almost at ground level, under Cuban radar, catching the anti-aircraft crews running for their guns. They were brought to a place called the National Photographic Interpretation Center, which DIA co-led with CIA, which is where we were looking at all of these pictures. At this altitude, the evidence is unmistakable. It shows Russian IL-28 Beagle bombers capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And they turned to one of our guys, a guy named Colonel David Parker, who's the deputy director uh, overseeing all photo interpretation. He sees the images and, of course, clearly says these, these are missiles as well. He calls over to DIA headquarters, and our director, General Carroll, at the time had a subordinate named John T. Hughes. And John T. Hughes had already established himself as one of the premier photo interpreters, uh, imagery analyst in the country. He sees the missiles, too. And so now we have two senior DIA personnel who have seen the missiles. What happens next? We've got this evidence now of these missiles definitively via photographs. What does DIA and the country do next? That moment, that contingency moment kicks in when policymakers are informed based on accurate, actionable intelligence, and they have to start making decisions now. For years, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had railed against what he perceived as the U.S. flaunting its military and economic superiority and its fostering of a double standard regarding nuclear deployment. Jupiter missiles placed in Turkey by the U.S. were just becoming operational and were seen by the Soviet leader as an insult. He wanted to turn the tables on America and was reported to have asked, why not throw a hedgehog at Uncle Sam's pants? Khrushchev certainly had plenty to say. But what were his intentions? For insight, we spoke with legendary broadcast journalist Marvin Kalb. He observed Khrushchev up close and was an eyewitness to history. Marvin Kalb, CBS News, the State Department. Kalb's distinguished and award-winning reporting from around the globe made him one of America's preeminent diplomatic correspondents. His stunning resume includes the distinction of being the last correspondent personally hired at CBS News by Edward R. Murrow and moderating NBC's Meet the Press. Meet the Press, America's press conference of the air. I am Marvin Kalb. And serving as chief diplomatic correspondent for the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. As Marvin Kalb reports from the State Department, the Soviets appear to be digging in to stay. President Carter demanded last... Kalb has authored 17 books. His latest, Assignment Russia, is about the time he spent in Moscow in the early days of the Cold War and broadcast news. Marvin, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. I'm going to get right to it because I'm so curious about what it was like being in Moscow during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, number one, as a journalist, it was a great story. I felt that this was a story that you had to hold on to and cover as best you could from every single angle, from the angle of what it is that Pravda, the Communist Party newspaper, would say, and what was the reaction on the part of the Russian people. So once a week, I would go to the central marketplace that had been my routine in any case, but during the missile crisis, that incredible week, I went there every morning and I tried as best I could to get through to the Russian people, quote unquote, 
to talk to them to get some sense of their response. And I was able to put all of this into uh, my broadcast, and that was essentially what I was trying to do. And it was the most exciting uh, week of my life. It was an incredible story. The U.S. is prepared to sink Soviet ships. The U.S. must assume it will face losses. These words came tonight from a high-ranking Defense Department spokesman who met here at the Pentagon with more than 100 reporters. Marvin, from your vantage point in Moscow, was it the same crisis there as it was here? Were people as scared there as they were here? The answer, broadly speaking, is no. The Soviet people, uh, the Russian people, were not frightened in the way in which the American people were. And there's a very simple reason for that. Their sense of what was happening was pre-orchestrated by Khrushchev and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And they didn't have uh, the kind of access to the truth or as close to the truth as we could get that was actually happening in the crisis. Day by day, they learned more, but it didn't change their mind as to what was truly important in the foreign sphere. In the foreign sphere, what was important to the Russian people was Germany, was Berlin, the split in Berlin. That was the central threatening aspect of life in the rest of the world. Khrushchev and the East German communists had completed their blueprint for the total isolation of East Berlin. For them, Germany was the Teutonic hordes, and they were riding eastward once again into Russia. And the Russians lived with that kind of domestic crisis created by the Nazi invasion of World War II. They lost tens of millions of people. There wasn't a single Russian family unaffected by the results of the Second World War. Cuba was far away, and that difference between the two set up essentially the difference, I believe, in the attitude that drove the Soviet leadership to send missiles in and rockets and nuclear weapons into Cuba. At the age of 25, before his career began at CBS, Kalb was drafted out of a graduate program at Harvard to serve as a Russian translator and interpreter for the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. He had a deep understanding and appreciation of Russian history and culture. Marvin, before I ask you specifically about Khrushchev, can you tell me why you chose journalism, and specifically working in television as a career? The idea of being the CBS Moscow correspondent was the perfect marriage of journalism to scholarship. With journalism, you had a very large classroom. And I thought it would be a step forward to be able to introduce scholarship into broadcasting, to able to bring some Russian history, uh, literature, um, some sense of what was happening in Russia as a country, not just as the communist antagonist of the United States. And what were your thoughts about Khrushchev? I was fascinated by the guy. He was an extraordinary man to cover. Khrushchev was, first of all, the first significant figure to emerge 
three years after the death of Joseph Stalin, who had led the Soviet Union for 29 terrifying years. He represented the opposition, as it were. And if you could get an interview with him, if you could find out what was going on in his mind, let's face it, you had an, an assured spot on the CBS Evening News. And this was a wonderful thing for a journalist, but also an important opportunity for the American people to get to know the man who was their principal antagonist. And because you spoke Russian fluently, you were able to have two unusual experiences with Khrushchev that I'd love for you to share. Just to set it up, the first occurred 65 years ago in 1956. You're an attache and you find out that Khrushchev and his defense minister, Georgi Yukov, have invited themselves to the embassy for, of all things, a July 4th party. So you're tasked with keeping an eye on Yukov. What happens next? We spoke for 30, 40 minutes, and the time passed very quickly, during which Yukov, who had a reputation as a drinker, socked back eight vodkas. I was having water, but he didn't know that. And so I drank, quote unquote, with him, drink for drink. And at that point, Khrushchev asked us to come toward him. He beckoned to us and we walked toward him. And I could see that Zhukov was a bit tipsy. And as he approached Khrushchev, he said, I have finally found a young American who can drink like a Russian. And everybody burst into laughter. And Khrushchev came over to me with that introduction. And he was about five, 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 six in height. I was six, three. And he asked me for my height. The thought ran through my mind at the time that I was three centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. And so I said that. And he burst into laughter. And from that moment on, whenever he saw me, he always referred to me as Peter the Great. <laughs> and you said that being compared to a Russian czar came in handy four years later at the Paris summit, right? Can you tell us the story of waiting for Khrushchev outside the Soviet embassy one morning on your first assignment for CBS? At exactly seven o'clock, these very large iron doors of the embassy clanked open and Khrushchev emerged. We rushed toward him. And at which point his two security people intercepted us, reached into their vests, obviously for a weapon. And Khrushchev interrupted them and said, no, 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 no. Don't do anything, he's fine, he's Peter the Great. And that was a wonderful opening. And we started together walking down the street. And we got toward the end of the block and there were the magnificent aromas of a freshly baked croissant, and there were dozens of them in front of this bakery shop. Khrushchev stopped, I stopped, we both sniffed, we were both enchanted, and I looked at Khrushchev and I said, have you ever tasted a freshly baked croissant? He said, no. I said, let me get some for you. When I rushed in and I got a bunch for him and his security people and my crew, and Khrushchev 
bit into it and absolutely loved it. His face lit up with the joy of a kid eating chocolate first thing in the morning. It was a delight for him, and I realized I suddenly had set up unintentionally the beginning of an interview of significance, and I then began to talk to him about Berlin. I began to talk to him about arms control. I began to talk to him about the YouTube crisis. It was a wonderful opening story and a heck of a way to begin a career as a foreign correspondent. During the crisis, more than 30 messages or letters were exchanged between Khrushchev, Kennedy, and Castro. Even 60 years later, they're enlightening and frightening. Here's an excerpt from one that Kennedy sent to Khrushchev. Dear Mr. Chairman, I have not assumed that you or any other sane man would, in this nuclear age, deliberately plunge the world into war, which it is crystal clear no country could win and which could only result in catastrophic consequences to the whole world, including the aggressor. Marvin, Americans thought of Khrushchev as cantankerous, but what they really wanted to know more than anything else was, was he a madman? In your opinion, was he someone that was willing to blow up the world? I never believed that Khrushchev was one willing to blow up the world. Never believed that for an instant. But what did you think that Khrushchev thought... More with Marvin Kalb in a little bit. That crazy sound, that interrupting and purposefully irritating sound, is called a klaxon. It's something that you did not want to hear in 1962 if you were on a military base anywhere in the country. There were klaxons uh, all over the base. When the klaxon would sound, the lights would flash all over the base, and all traffic except uh, alert crew traffic had to come to a complete halt. When the klaxon sound, go out to the airplane, get the power on, start up the engines, and listen for a call from the tower. I'm Gus Leto. At the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was a B-47 aircraft commander in Strategic Air Command, flying out of the 301st Bomb Wing, Lockbourne Air Force Base. The B-47 primarily served as a nuclear bomber capable of striking targets within the Soviet Union. At Strategic Air Command headquarters in Omaha, the alert has reached the status, one step short of war. Gus Leto was on one of the Strategic Air Command bomber crews at the only time in the history of the Cold War when U.S. forces reached Defense Condition 2. At DEFCON 1, those crews would have been dropping bombs. We wanted to hear from Gus because he gave us another opportunity to listen to someone with a first-hand account of life during the missile crisis. Gus, thanks so much for joining us. Can you give us an idea what it was like to be on ground alert at that time and what your normal routine was? It was uh, usually Wednesday to Wednesday. Go on alert. You take over an airplane that was fully cocked for fast start and take off. You had 15 minutes to get off because that's what uh, we were told uh, you'd have to beat the uh, incoming missiles from the Soviet Union. Air refueling over the east coast and then fly straight east, uh, coasting in in the Baltic states and uh, fly across uh, the Soviet Union. And we would be weaving a, uh, a weave pattern at high altitude, hoping to, to shield the bombers that were going in at low altitude. Well, 
it sounds like a lot of things have to go right to have a successful mission. Uh, in the unlikely event that you were able to evade all the uh, Soviet defenses, then the, the next problem is where are you going to land? And uh, there were, <laughs> the Soviets were no fools. If they ever got into a uh, full-out nuclear exchange, it was going to be that not only were the launch bases struck, but the uh, post-strike bases were going to be struck. So there would be no more in Sherlock and there would be no more Anchorage or any of those other places. You wouldn't have any place to land. My philosophy goes, if this comes, take off and fly as long as you can. And when it's, when it's over, it's over. Period. That's your job. Russians have said that they would retaliate with rocket fire. We have said if there's rocket fire from Cuba, we will retaliate. And there goes the whole ball game. Gus, I realize this happened 60 years ago, but I'm struck by how you're so matter-of-fact about it. Did you feel or think about the fact that this might be your last mission? Did that ever enter in your thoughts? To be frank about it, if you have a full nuclear exchange, the world was going to end um, uh, before very long. It wasn't the kind of thing that anybody ever talked about because it just wasn't going to happen. We were so sure that our strategy of maintaining such a defense that uh, there was the mutual assured destruction that the, the Soviets liked uh, their, their homes and their families and, and the higher-ups uh, liked staying in power and why should they throw it all away? I'm wondering about the personal and emotional aspect when it comes to family. I mean, the mission's a mission, but what about family? I know that you were 30 years old. Were you married? Did you have children? I, uh, I yeah, I was married, had uh, uh, two kids, uh, two, two daughters. Uh, theoretically, if this mission, uh, if we ever got into a nuclear exchange, that I would, uh, everybody was going to die. Uh, I was convinced of that. And that you would hope that your family did not suffer. Uh, you'd hope that they, they'd be hit by the first, uh, the, the first bombs because life was going to be really, really bad. There was no chance that very many people were going to live. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Within the past on October 22nd, in a televised address to the nation, President Kennedy announced the presence of nuclear-capable ballistic missiles in Cuba and that he was placing a naval quarantine, or blockade, around the island. The United States arrived at the decision for an arms blockade after studying reconnaissance photographs made with high-powered cameras from planes flying several miles from the Cuban coast. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will, if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. This quarantine will be extended... Here's a letter from Khrushchev to Kennedy. Mr. President, you are not declaring a quarantine, but rather are setting forth an ultimatum and threatening that if we do not give in to your demands, you will use force. The Soviet government considers that the violation of the freedom to use international waters and international airspace is an act of aggression which pushes mankind towards the abyss of a world nuclear missile war. As dire as Khrushchev's words were, the contrast with his public persona was striking. Outwardly, anyway, it looked like he was treating this nuclear tug of war as just another night at the opera, figuratively and literally. Performing in Moscow just two nights after Kennedy's speech was American opera star Jerome Hines. American singer Jerome Hines, solist Metropolitan Opera, 
The significance of his appearance was not lost on CBS Moscow correspondent Marvin Kalb, who was there as well. Any reporter, any diplomat, any anybody was wrapped up in the crisis fully. It was a 100% operation, and in the middle of which, as far as the Kalb household was concerned, my wife thought it would be a great idea if we went to the opera at the Bolshoi that night, the Bolshoi Theater. I thought it was a totally insane idea. I was not to leave my office for anything. But my wife argued her point, and we went to the opera. Heinz was performing with the Metropolitan Opera. In the 200-year history of the Bolshoi Theater, they had never allowed an American opera to come in. The story became newsworthy drama at the appearance of someone very familiar with political theater. And everybody applauded the beginning of the opera and the appearance of an American, a visiting American opera star. Khrushchev and half of the Politburo arrived at the theater, sat down in the famous box in the middle in the mezzanine level. And my wife looked at me and I looked at her sheepishly and said, you win, because here was the story. It was Khrushchev paying his respects to an American opera star. And when the opera was over, Khrushchev went backstage and, and again paid his respects to the United States. He was speaking with Jerome Hines and I slipped into the backstage as well. The only reason I got back there was that the Secret Service guys for Khrushchev knew me as Peter the Great, and so I was not a threat. And I went back there and I heard Khrushchev tell an American star that we will somehow uh, get out of this mess. That's my word, not his. And I was listening to this, taking notes. I had a terrific story, and I thank my wife for it. As a footnote to history, Khrushchev's standing ovations led to six curtain calls for Heinz. It's been said that he was so moved by his performance in the title role of Boris Gudunov, a former czar of Russia, that seeing it affected his subsequent behavior during the crisis. Now, that may or may not have been the case, but back in Washington... The lights are still burning in the president's living quarters. As President Kennedy understands better tonight than ever before what Thomas Jefferson meant when he called the president's existence this life in splendid misery. The president simply waits tonight... The stage was set for a very public, very dramatic confrontation, one that would only be resolved by a picture-perfect example of intelligence gathering, a role that the Defense Intelligence Agency relishes and excels in, now and then. Once again, here's DIA historians Greg Elder and Paul Isaacson. So, Greg, something happened at the United Nations, right, on the 25th of October. What was that? president on the 22nd briefed the world on television. But that's not the same thing as providing evidence to the world that there's an actual crisis. So he called for our United Nations ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, to essentially confront uh, the Soviet ambassador uh, in front of the National Security Council and effectively the world to, to, to tell the truth. Let me ask you why your government, your foreign minister, deliberately cynically deceived us about the nuclear buildup in Cuba. 
The important part of that is Adley Stevenson isn't just talking in a vacuum. He's not just up there talking without knowing what he's talking about. He's getting the information in the briefing from two people, one of them DIA's own Colonel Parker from the National Photographic Interpretation Center. The following is audio never previously heard from the Defense Intelligence Agency's Colonel David Parker. I drafted, uh, oh, I believe, four or five uh, double-spaced typewritten pages about uh, the photography and what it showed, starting at the beginning, showing uh, land with no missiles present, and then developing or showing the development of the missiles over a period of a few days. Colonel Parker goes up and he's briefing Adley Stevenson. He literally writes Adley Stevenson's talking points for confronting the Soviet ambassador on the floor. All right, sir. Let me ask you one simple question. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba? Yes or no? Don't wait for the translation, yes or no. Now, the funny story in all of this is that uh, our guy, Colonel Parker, having briefed Adley Stevenson, done everything he was supposed to do, uh, thought his job was done. So he's preparing to leave. He's in the elevator going down to get in a car to come back to Washington, D.C. In the elevator on the way up, there was a loudspeaker which carried uh, continuously the debate going on in the U.N. Much to my amazement, I heard the Russian ambassador say, you have no evidence that we have missiles in Cuba, or words to that effect. Parker, on his own initiative, concerned that unless he gets back up there with this evidence, that a moment may go by uh, where, where we aren't able to prove to the world that the, that the Soviets have missiles in Cuba, rushes back to the United Nations. And Adley Stevenson says in, in a really important moment in U.N. history, you know, he says, I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision. And I'm also prepared to present the evidence in this room. I learned that President Kennedy was personally watching this debate on TV. And when he heard the Russians say they had no evidence, he picked up the phone and told Ambassador Stevenson to show the photographs. These enlarged photographs clearly show six of these missiles on trailers and three erected. And there it is, the proof that the president and the world needs that the Soviet Union had lied. By October 25th, the Navy confirms that Soviet ships are returning to Europe, much to the consternation of Fidel Castro. Here's a letter from Castro to Khrushchev. Dear Comrade Khrushchev, Countless eyes of Cuban and Soviet men who were willing to die with supreme dignity shed tears upon learning the sudden and practically unconditional decision to withdraw the weapons. We knew, and do not presume that we ignored it, that we would have been annihilated. But from the instant the imperialists attacked Cuba, they would by this act become aggressors against Cuba and against the USSR, and we would respond with a strike that would annihilate them. Two weeks after the U.S. discovered the missiles, the United States and Soviet Union reached an agreement. The U.S. would not invade Cuba, and the Soviets would withdraw missiles from Cuba. The U.S. also agreed to remove its missiles from Turkey, but that information wasn't made public. The concern at the White House was how the news would portray Khrushchev and the Soviet Union and possibly impact the deal. 
For Marvin Kalb, the concern was altogether different. Does anybody in the control room know whether Moscow is standing by? Hello, Kalb, are you there in Moscow? David, this is Moscow standing by. The crisis broke on a Sunday morning, and I had opened up our line to New York so that they could hear Moscow radio. Marvin, one thing seems to be quite sure this morning, as we see it from Washington, and that is that Khrushchev has capitulated. But we wondered whether or not you see it that way in Moscow. You get the feeling that the Soviet government has backed down all the way, and many observers who have spent a long time around here really cannot recall a time when the Kremlin has backed off an issue so quickly and really so abjectly. I said on air, Khrushchev caved today. And in Washington, President Kennedy heard that and did not want to corner Khrushchev. He didn't want to embarrass Khrushchev. He wanted to soften the blow, as it were. And the use of the verb caved in Kennedy's mind was the wrong verb to use. And he got in touch with Pierre Salinger, the press spokesman at the White House, and he said, make sure that Cal does not say that again. And I thought about it and realized that, in fact, that is and was, in my judgment, what it is that Khrushchev had done. And I used the verb two or three times, in fact, for the rest of the day, making me not the most popular guy at the White House, but I thought at the time that it was the accurate verb to use. The world seems to have veered off, at least for the moment, the collision course toward global annihilation. Naturally, you'd think that's the end of the story. But believe it or not, three months after it appeared to be over, it wasn't. President Kennedy was taking heat from opponents of his administration, claiming there were still missiles on the island. Defense Secretary McNamara decided to take the classified case public to dispel rumors that the Soviets were still there. In a coda to the dramatic events of October, he scheduled a national televised briefing, and he ordered John Hughes to conduct it. Mr. John Hughes, the special assistant to General Carroll, the director of our Defense Intelligence Agency, will now present to you a detailed photographic review of the introduction of Soviet military... Once again, it was up to the Defense Intelligence Agency to save the day. But there was a very big problem that made Hughes feel like a fish out of water. That'll make a little more sense after you hear this from Greg Elder. He gets over to the State Department thinking that he's going to be briefing off of like a small, like four by four foot screen or something like that. It's a 14 foot screen. It's huge. It's monstrous. He calls one of his uh, one of his colleagues up at the Pentagon and he says, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to brief the world. CBS, NBC, ABC. Uh, I-, I don't have a pointer. Uh, what am I going to do? And, and his colleague says, calm down. I'll be over there in a couple of minutes. And you can see this guy running out to his, his truck and driving across the bridge from the Pentagon to D.C. Uh, and he goes in the back of his truck. He takes his fishing poles. He tapes them together. He runs inside, gives them to John T. Hughes. And lo and behold, the images that you see. If you will, the erectors have been removed from their firing positions. They've been drawn back. The video that you see of John T. Hughes briefing what he had presented to President Kennedy. That he's briefing the world now. And what you see is John T. Hughes holding up fishing poles as a pointer, showing all the missiles being disassembled. 
observed as late as Monday, 4 February. These areas were inactive, still dismantled, and marked by no military activity. Wow, that's right. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> At that point in time, that's really kind of the end of the crisis. That's that moment where now everybody in the world, the United States, has truly seen now the missiles disassembled, sent away, and, and people can now take that collective kind of breath that, that gets us to a point where we say we're all not going to die. Well, nothing beats a great fish story, especially when it's true. Before we go, here's some final thoughts from our guests. First up is bomber pilot Gus Leto. The civilian population on the outside, they were terribly, terribly terrified. As long as we are doing our job of maintaining vigilance, and as long as the Soviets were convinced that they had no chance in a nuclear war, conducting a first strike, it just wasn't going to happen. And here's Marvin Kalb. Khrushchev was a man who was terrified of nuclear war. He said quite often that if there were a war, the living would envy the dead. Someone asked him, were you scared? That was the verb that was used. Were you scared during the Cuban Missile Crisis? And his answer was very illustrative of the man himself. He said, yes, he was scared. And then he added, that if you were not scared, you were an idiot. And Greg Elder. There's not a part of the Cuban Missile Crisis that doesn't have DIA's kind of fingerprint on it. And we take great pride at the agency uh, in the fact that just a year after our agency's creation, here's this just enormous crisis, one of the great crises, not just of American history, but of world history, and DIA immediately shows the value of, of why it was created and to this day, the importance of, of defense intelligence. And that's all proven out in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then there's this from Nikita Khrushchev's memoirs. He said, we hadn't had time to deliver all our shipments to Cuba, but we had installed enough missiles already to destroy New York, Chicago, and other huge industrial cities, not to mention the little village of Washington. In 2021, the Defense Intelligence Agency celebrates 60 years of commitment to excellence in defense of the nation. To learn more, check us out on social media or go to dia.mil. And please, don't forget to rate, review, and follow DIA Connections. Thanks for listening.